dedicated to mothering. This is a community where we aim to create a comfortable space that allows for active discussion without judgment. Find us at thecuriousmother.com and follow us on social media. Our Instagram is at thecuriousmother. Welcome back to The Curious Mother. I'm Kristen Daly. I'm Melissa Miller. And we are very excited to be joined today by Dr. Terry James. Terry has a PhD in clinical and school psychology, and she specializes in academic achievement and child development. Welcome, Terry. Hi, Kristen. Hi, Melissa. Thank you for having me. We're so glad you're here. We need to talk about kindergarten. When is the right time to start your child? What to do if you think your child should start early? And um, academic assessment. So we're so thrilled to have your specialty today because it's a really confusing world for parents. So let's start with talking about early kindergarten. What do you recommend to a parent if they think that their child is really ready for school and really bright and they want to start their kid before the age allowance in their state? Right. Well, and I think you just... um on a really good point. So each state has its own deadline and own cutoff. So you need to know what the cutoff is in your own state and you need to know what the rules are in your state to even pursue early kindergarten admission. So here in North Carolina where we practice, um, the state sets the rule that your child has to score above the 98th percentile on an IQ test which means that your child basically needs to be gifted if they want to go to school before the August 31st cutoff in North Carolina. Additionally, they need to score above the 98th percentile on academic achievement in reading and math for their age, and they need to submit a portfolio of work to the school, and the final decision is up to the school's principal. Wow, so they have to be smarter than 98% of the kids their age, right? That's the 98 percentile. You got it. And they have to be outperforming 98% of the kids their age that for reading and math. And math. And they have, what is, like, tell us, what is the a portfolio, portfolio of work? <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm trying to imagine, like, I, I'm seeing a little kid out with, like, their, their layout of their finger paintings. <laughs> it could be a writing sample. It could okay. be a picture that they've drawn. It can be things that made that parent think that their child excels and needs to be in an enriched environment. And, Terry, you do a fair number of these assessments. I do. So one of the things that I do um, is I break up the... Um, IQ part, the aptitude part, and the achievement part for parents. Um, I don't have parents just come in and do a two-hour assessment for a set price. I try to have them do one, and then if their child qualifies and they're still interested in coming back for the second, because that is the other part of early kindergarten in North Carolina, is that parents need to go to a private psychologist in order to have the testing done and pay for it privately. And so which part do you like to start off with? I usually start off with the IQ. Okay. So you kind of screen there to say, is do we even need to move forward or is this? And I mean, so I'm assuming that since it's they have to be in the 98th percentile, it's probably pretty unusual for you to have kids actually hit that mark. It is because only 2% of children <laughs> of that age will right. hit that mark. Um, and I think that can be very disappointing to parents who feel, but my kid is very bright and they're scoring at the 93rd percentile, why can't they go on to kindergarten? And I'm always like, it's not my fault. It's the state law. So, um, But I do try to explain that to parents before they come in and before they um, start the journey. But I think that, you know, there are, there are kids that then will come back and do the academics, and there are kids that are appropriate to start kindergarten early. I just think that, um, at least in our state, they make them 
jump through an awful lot of hoops. And I don't know that they make that as crystal clear as parents would probably appreciate. Let me just ask, is it really that beneficial to start your child early? So the research is pretty mixed. Um, I think most parents would feel that their child should start early because they're ready for the academics, because they're bored in preschool, they're Mm -hmm. not being challenged, they have children that are curious, that really would benefit from that enrichment. So I think that's a positive thing. Um, You know, in public education, we also don't pay for kindergarten. It's hard to find preschool where you're not paying, and that's Mm -hmm. a huge expense for a lot of parents. So there are definite benefits to if your child qualifies starting early. However, you have to try to look in that crystal ball and think, okay, the developmental difference between four and five might not be that great, but what about 10 and 11 Mm -hmm. or 15 and 16? And what's going to happen when all the girls are developing and my daughter isn't? What's going to happen when my boy is the smallest kid in his grade and everyone else is playing football at recess? And those are hard things for parents to see that far in the future about. Yeah, I can remember um, in one of my graduate, I'm sure it was child development, (laughs) but um, we had learned, and you can correct me if this is wrong, but that boys have more advantage if they're slightly older than the pack because for guys it's better to be more ahead like an early bloomer in guys can be socially advantageous but for girls it's actually the opposite like being an early bloomer as a girl is actually a huge social disadvantage and so it can sometimes be helpful for them to be younger than the rest of the pack. And I think the research is pretty mixed on the development stuff, but there have been a lot of studies that are showing, yes, that those girls who develop early are more prone to anxiety and body mm-hmm. issues um, and whatnot. The stuff about the boys, though, it has a lot to do with the size of your kid, and sometimes holding them back or putting them forward isn't going to make a huge difference. I mean, if you're five feet and your husband's five two, it's <laughs> not going to be the star linebacker in That's all likelihood. Such a good point. Yeah. Um, so. You know, what work, again, what works for everybody else doesn't necessarily work in your house and in your family. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also, it's really hard even to know when they're going to blossom, right? You know, I mean, we, we did an episode on puberty and I'm, I, I, I have one who, you know, my kiddos are all about that age and I think I, I was an early bloomer. My husband was a really late bloomer. So we were trying to do the math and try to get an <laughs> estimate and, you know, two of our kiddos had summer birthdays, so we were in that place of where sometimes people will hold back a year, and other times, you know, they start a year. And because they were, it was, both of our daughters had summer birthdays, I thought it would make sense to go ahead and get them started because I'll, knowing what it's like to be an early bloomer, I did not want my daughters to have to go through that. Um, and the crazy thing is... One of my daughters is smaller than her whole class and I think really would have benefited from an extra year of early of pre-K. And the other one is bigger than the rest of her class. And thank goodness we started her because she would have gone crazy if we made her do a year of pre-K. And so I think even with the insight of where they where I, you know, that snapshot of where they were developmentally, it's still, I feel like we made the right move with one and the wrong move with the other. Right. And again, it's that crystal ball. Does it work or not at the right. time? And there's no guarantee. The idea of holding kids back is called red shirting. Mm-hmm. And it yes. became extremely popular like in the 90s and early 2000s to give your kids that extra year. And it's kind of like the opposite <laughs> topic of starting kindergarten early. But 
there's this perception that, well, if I hold my kid back, they will have the advantage. And sometimes that's true and sometimes it's not. What the studies show is that by about third grade, the educational advantage of holding a kid back versus not sort of evens out. Really? But there is some evidence that socially and from an anxiety standpoint, the kids who got that extra year benefit. But why did you hold them back in the first place is the question. And you have to look at your kid where they are and say, okay, are they mature? How do they fit into their age group now? We don't know what's going to happen when they're 10, 12, 15. In terms of pushing them early or holding them back, you need to see where they are functioning at the moment and sort of hope for the best and then make the best of whatever choice you make. Yeah, I think it's hard, you know, to... Because on one hand, I, I think I've been very hard on myself for the, the kiddo who I made, we probably made the wrong choice. I always do have to remind myself that we made the best choice we could with the information we had. Um, but even still, like if we had had the opportunity of like having switched schools or something, I would love to have given her the option to have an extra year. And I feel like now we're too far in, you know. Yeah. And that's, that is a way to correct the path if you really know that you truly made the wrong choice. Um, you know, switching schools is a great opportunity to, you know, have a child repeat a grade, assuming the school's on board. But if you're staying in the same school, it's not usually a viable option just because of all the social right. repercussions of having a child repeat a grade. Um, and then you just have to kind of, like you said, make the best of what you have. Yeah. I hope, I really want to encourage parents to make the choice about what they think is going to be best for their child. I think sometimes get parents get real wrapped up in wanting to have a kid that they can say, oh, she's so bright, we got to start her early. And it yeah. becomes kind of a, a medal for the parents, which is really detrimental to the kid. And I think not listening to the crowd and doing what's best for your own child is almost always the right choice and a hard one sometimes to make, especially when, you know, if you happen to live in a town where you know, people will say to you, oh, well, if you're going to do private school, you need to hold your boys back because they won't take summer birthday boys. Or there's no one rule that fits everybody, but there's, you need to speak to admissions, you need to speak to the schools, you need to find out what's right for your child. Because the generalization of, oh, it's better to do a year, it's better to go early, it's better to hold back, doesn't always work for that child. It's what does that child need? And again, you're not going to always know what that child needs down the road. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, like if you were to imagine, so it sounds like it's pretty rare for those early kindergarten assessments to result in a kiddo really being ready for early kindergarten, at least based on North Carolina standards. Unfortunately, for those parents, yes. Are there, is there an, an advantage to doing some type of intellectual or academic achievement testing in your kiddo? And if so, when is the right time to do it? If you, okay, so there's two different types. These, these terms are often confused. Okay. So there's aptitude testing, which is cognitive, also nor normally known as IQ testing, okay? Mm -hmm. And that's different than achievement testing. So aptitude testing or cognitive testing, IQ testing, is supposed to be based on your child's natural intellectual ability, not based on learned, learned um, topics, nothing that they had to study for, nothing they had to be taught. Academic achievement is those fundamentals and then that academic achievement, reading, writing, and math. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. so there are different types of testing. There's a benefit to doing them early if you have concerns because it can absolutely bring up red flags. It can help guide interventions. And the whole idea of early intervention 
is to change that trajectory so that later on you don't have problems that are as severe. So early identification is key to preventing later and greater issues. So what would be early? Um, like, I mean, I've tested kids as young as three. Okay. Um, I would say that that's a rare case unless you're looking at something like autism. Okay. Honestly. Um, if you're looking more for that IQ achievement, four or five is early still, and it can bring up red flags. But again, that academic piece is very hard to assess at that point because we're not, quote unquote, teaching our kids in preschool, right? Most yes. preschools are developmentally based. It's laying the fundamentals of later education. So it might be something like letter sounds, but they might not be able to read. Yeah. You don't expect them to read. Um, so it's harder to identify learning disabilities, for example, in very young children because they haven't had those opportunities for education yet. But if they don't know their phonics sounds, if they can't identify letters, if you're picking up on visual processing issues early, all of those things would be red flags that if we address early could prevent later issues. Okay. So that was a convoluted answer, sorry. Yeah. So why would you do early assessment is if you have true concerns or if you have a family history, older kids or parents that have issues, then it's really good to get that baseline and kind of measure it along the way. Okay. Or if you really truly want to know where your child's strengths are and weaknesses are so you can foster strengths and address weaknesses. Where it's not necessarily a good idea of time, money, and resources, if you just want to know how quote unquote smart your kid is at five, that's not that's not the best use of your resources or of your expectations for your child. Because, <laughs> you know, if they score really high, does that mean you don't have to do anything? And if they don't score as high, does that mean they're not as bright as you thought they were? So you're gonna change the way you're parenting or exposing them to things? That's when those early assessments don't always make sense. Yeah, I've actually, I've, I've had one family I worked with where they had, they were aware of their child's IQ and almost like constantly used that as a reason to be frustrated with their academic achievement. You know, I, I heard over and over again, they are too smart to be getting a C in math. They are too smart for X, Y, and Z. And I, and I really was thinking that in that context, that probably was not a great number for the parents to have. You know, it was. I think it was really, it had cre painted this kid with one brush and wasn't giving the kid any room to really be who they were. Right. And just because you have the aptitude for superior later achievement doesn't mean that that's going to come out unless you're given the opportunities. And, you know, there's a lot of interfering factors that can reduce your achievement your achievement and mm -hmm. your aptitude. Um, you know, we know ADHD, um, learning disabilities, all of these things can stop the full expression of a cognitive ability. So, so it's very different to find out that number of how smart is my kid. But when you say if parents want to know strengths and weaknesses, what kind of testing and what are the benefits or not benefits to doing that? And the testing's probably the same. It's just the way that the psychologist interprets them, I guess, would be different. Um, you know, here in our practice, you know, we really try through the Mind Matters program to emphasize strengths and weaknesses. So I will say to parents when I'm going over their child's report, like, this is the IQ test and this is the number, but we're going to forget about that. This is what it really means. And we'll talk about the different composite scores, and we'll talk about strengths in verbal areas and weaknesses in visual areas and how that translates to A's in English and struggles in math and what do we need to do and how do we build on existing strengths 
to help with areas of weakness. Um, and that's what I'm talking about when we identify weaknesses. We kind of approach them from two different perspectives, right? There's accommodations, which are things that you can do at school that will help the child, things like extended time or separate testing or larger print. Those are accommodations. But there's also interventions, which is what's meant to strengthen the areas that are weak. Give me an example. Tutoring. Okay. Um, playing math games online. Um, using websites um, like Khan Academy, for example, where they have videos where they explain all the different math concepts. And so a child who has trouble with the visual can listen to the verbal aspects of a math lesson and suddenly things are clicking that they weren't getting by just looking at the page. So what would the right age to have this, to test for strengths and weaknesses be? There's no one number. It's really when the parents or the school is having concerns or, again, if the parent feels like this child is really excelling in this area and I want to really see if I'm reading it right, if my mm-hmm. perception is correct, and if there's things that I can do to continue to foster it. Mm-hmm. So if a child is doing great in school, enjoying school, is testing necessary? No. Okay. Unless, <laughs> well, remember, this is what I do. Um, unless, well, unless, but then those aren't the parents that come to us. Right. Yeah. You know, no, nobody really walks into my office and is like, my kid is rocking school and there's no attention concerns. They don't end up right. with us. Like, yeah. I don't think you seek an evaluation if you're, unless you're truly just curious about strengths and weaknesses, and then you don't have to go through the whole neurodevelopmental Mm -hmm. assessment. Mm -hmm. When they end up coming in for assessment is usually when either they feel that they're so smart and their achievement isn't gelling, and they want to know if there's stuff interfering, if there's learning issues, if there's attention issues, if there's something stopping that child from meeting their own individual potential, Mm -hmm. or if the child is expressing frustration, like, I can't remember things, I, I feel disorganized, or if it's coming with direction from the school mm-hmm. of this kid doesn't seem to be happy, successful, et cetera. Because I do get a, a lot of my friends ask, like, should I just know about my kid's brain? Should we have testing done? And there's a benefit to that because it is sort of like a guidebook to mm-hmm. understanding your child. And there is a benefit if you truly want to know your child's strengths and weaknesses, not if you just want to do the testing because, again, that's what the crowd is saying. Yeah, yeah. It, it can really help in terms of, like, let's just say your child has a slow processing speed, how quickly they're able to think about things. And you're constantly frustrated by this child because they just are moving at a slightly different pace right? Mm -hmm. And they're just taking longer on things, but their grades are fine. The teachers aren't complaining. But sometimes that assessment piece can sort of make you go, okay, really? This isn't my imagination. And this child is not doing this on purpose to irritate me. (laughs) They are literally moving at a slightly different rate with how they process. And that can change your parenting perspective in terms of your patient's with your, that child, and that can change the dynamics, and then there's less nagging, and then there's less fighting. And so, yes, assessment can have those benefits as well. Great. What are the um, different – so you talked a little bit about aptitude and achievement, but I know there are a lot of tests out there. Yes. So, Terry, what are the different types of assessments out there, and, and what, what are they typically used for? 
Okay. Um, I mean, there's there, that is that is a loaded question because there's so many different types of tests. When we do a neurodevelopmental assessment, we can look at things like executive functioning. Um, we can look at things like attention. We can look at things like focus. We can also look at language. We can look at reading, writing, math. We can look at processing speed. There's writing tests. There's math tests. There's visual processing tests. I mean, we run the gamut. So when I do an assessment, for example, I always explain this to the parents that I sort of start with the borders, almost the same for most kids that come in, right? The borders of a puzzle. Most kids who come in are going to get an aptitude and an achievement test. That's Uh like the foundation, the outside of the puzzle. And then the inside pieces, I can't tell the parents on that intake what I'm going to give because I build the assessment around the child's individual strengths and weaknesses. And that's how we fill in the puzzle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. By filling in the puzzle, that's how we get the answers on how to help that kid. Mm -hmm. So I don't always know. Like, I'll have an idea of where I'm going, and then it'll take a sharp right turn after I realize that the kid has no phonics Uh or there's an expressive language going on, uh, issue going on. And the parents don't always have that language when they come in to be able to say, well, my child really has trouble expressing themselves, and I think there might be an underlying language issue. They'll say things like, he doesn't talk Uh or he doesn't listen. Uh And they think it's attention, and it ends up being language. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like it's kind of um, some really pretty fascinating detective work. I, and it I, is detective work. <laughs> how do you um, – I would imagine that as a parent, and I, I have been a parent who's gone through this several times, um, one of the fears that I always have is that um, we're going to go through this assess- assessment process, and the stuff that I see is not going to show up on the test. And um, it's it's funny because every time we've been through this, I've had that thought process of we're going to meet with this person, they're going to do an assessment, and they're not going to see any of what we see. And so far, I will say it's always been exactly what we see. <laughs> but how do how do parents kind of get through that that understanding? Well, an important part of assessment is questionnaires. So we always mm-hmm. get the parents' perspective, the teachers' perspective when it's available because assessment is a false situation, right? The child's working one-on-one with a clinician in an office for a certain number of hours. That's not always the real world. Especially with little kids, I love to get into the school and do a school observation for that exact reason also. So we do try to get multiple perspectives. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, What I always tell parents is if at the end of the assessment you have an answer to the question that you sort of already knew, (laughs) then I've done my job really well. Because I think even if you don't have the language, I think parents have good instincts. And I always Mm -hmm. tell parents, trust your instincts, what you say counts. And it's an important part of the assessment. Now, my diagnosis might be slightly different than what you came in thinking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But most parents have a pretty good sense of their kids' strengths and weaknesses. They just don't always know how to articulate it or put a finger on it. And mm-hmm. I think that that is what an assessment can really help parents with, is that understanding and also that language. Mm-hmm. What is it like to do a school observation? Well, in a preschool, it's really fun because <laughs> you get to go to preschools and watch them play. Um, usually when we go, when I go in and I do a school observation, you know, we arrange it with the parents in the school ahead of time. And I always do it before the kid has met me so that, you know, they don't know that I'm there watching them. And I'll come in and most of the kids come right up and they say, who are you? Whose mommy are you? What are you here to teach? Can you read me this? Can you do this with me? Um, and we just kind of say that I'm there to observe the teacher and learn how they're teaching. And you kind of just sit back and you watch the kid interact with their friends, how they are in class, Um, and you can get great information because one-on-one, that kid might be right on, right? Mm -hmm. But in a classroom, 
let's just say this is a child who has auditory processing issues, mm -hmm. for example. In a classroom, in a loud environment with lots going on, they're totally zoned out. Mm -hmm. But one-on-one -on, -one on my assessment, they're focused, they're on, well, that gives you a clue that there's something in the environment that's affecting their focus more than a neurodevelopmental weakness related to ADHD. Yeah. And then you start doing a little bit more auditory processing assessment, and it just kind of gives you that other perspective. All right, we had a classroom observation on one of my daughters, and uh, this school psychologist said um, that she relies on social support to overcome her inattentiveness from her ADHD. And when we were going through this observational report, I had this like major light bulb go off because I was like, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> I do that too. <laughs> because seriously, through graduate school, I always had the best friend who is the person who's on point and on task. <laughs> but, that's a, but that's a great coping skill. And actually, that's one of my recommendations for kids with ADHD is that we pair them up with great social models and that they have a friend that they're allowed to share their notes with. And that's, that's not a bad thing. That's a great coping skill that your daughter was developing without anybody having to teach her to do it. I know. I thought it was really funny because, I mean, clearly I did not go to a school psych program because it was all brand new to me. <laughs> So we've talked about early kindergarten, we've talked about the assessment piece, but a different term is kindergarten readiness. Can you describe what that means? So readiness is a term that educators use to mean, is your child developmentally ready to enter the next stage? And it is completely different than early kindergarten entrance. So readiness means do they have the skills that they need to be successful? And when we talk about that, when I talk in town about this, my, I, my slide says, no, your child does not have to read before they start kindergarten, okay? <laughs> because that's the only thing that parents tend to focus on. When we talk about readiness, we want to look at the whole child, this whole developmental perspective. So we're talking about their cognitive ability and their academic fundamentals, but we're also talking about their fine motor skills, their gross motor skills, their expressive language skills, how you get language out, and their receptive language skills, how you take language in. You're talking about social skills. You're talking about curiosity. It's all of these different factors that go into if your child's truly ready for kindergarten or not. And parents always say, well, how do you know? And this is usually one of those situations where it's if you don't have questions about it, they're good to go. <laughs> when you have questions about it, there's usually a reason. So if you have fears, if your teachers are bringing up concerns, or if you feel that your child's going to benefit from an extra year of services, if they're in speech, if they're in PT, if they're in OT, that extra year can be a great time to give them those skills and those services. And when is it appropriate to expect a kiddo to be able to sit still? Like, <laughs> I'll let you know. <laughs> what does that question mean? <laughs> Where are you? It depends. How engaged are they? Well, you, you do. You have parents say all the time, but they can sit in front of the Xbox or the iPad or the TV for hours without moving, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it, developmentally, expectations change based on the age, but also based on the environment. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, if you're expecting your four-year-old to sit quietly at the dinner table for an hour while there's a dull conversation, good luck. You know, if you're expecting a three-year-old to sit through The Incredibles 2, it's still unlikely, right? Mm -hmm. By, you know, seven, eight, they should be able to sit through a movie mm -hmm. if they understand the plot and right. if they're not afraid right. of the dark and if yeah. the person behind them isn't munching on something that's more interesting than the movie. 
like everything in life, there's no one answer. Yeah. So when we were getting ready for kindergarten, Terry, I was so thankful that I came to you with all my questions like, are they ready? What should parents do if they're, if they're not quite sure? Who should they talk to? Not grandma. Uh, <laughs> I would say, well, okay. So first I would speak to your child's um, preschool teacher mm -hmm. and ask them if they have concerns. Because parents usually, particularly of young kids, you know, that could be your first or they could be very different than your other child. So you have an N of what? Two, three, four, one. Mm -hmm. You know, that's who you're comparing your child to. A preschool teacher has an entire classroom, years of experience. So they're a really good source to talk to about do you have any concerns from a maturity perspective, from an educational perspective, from a cognitive perspective. And if you address your preschool teacher, they are very likely to share their concerns with you in a good, appropriate way. Um, sometimes preschool teachers are hesitant to come to parents with their concerns because they don't always want to be the first one to bring that up, mm -hmm. or schools have different policies, but if yeah. you want to know, approach them. That's really the best way to get a sense of how they compare to others. And we want to look at our children as individuals, but when we're talking about readiness, we are comparing them to a group. Mm -hmm. And parents don't have that ability to compare to a group. Yeah, mm -hmm. great. Um, this is so fascinating. Thank you so much for sitting down and talking to us about this today. It's confusing as parents, but I think that, um, Hearing what you have to say, it's very reassuring and, and makes a lot of sense. Thank you. So thanks so much for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of The Curious Mother. Learn more at www.thecuriousmother.com, where you will find resources related to episode topics. Please join our community and add your voice. Follow us on Instagram at The Curious Mother. Thanks for listening.